Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we want to welcome you to this week's edition of the show. I want to remind you that in addition to listening to us right here on KTRL 90.5 FM at noon each Sunday, you can also listen online. That's at tarletonradio.com while the show is airing. Or you can also listen after the show on SoundCloud or download where you get your podcast. Uh, we also have a Facebook page and we post interesting articles, related links, uh, as well as the SoundCloud recording each week. Uh, so visit uh, our Facebook page at On Politics with Eric Morrow. So this week we had some interesting developments in the presidential race, and that was the pick of a vice a presidential nominee for uh, the Democratic Party uh, and the Biden campaign. Uh, this was announced earlier in the week, and of course, a couple of media events followed. And of course, everyone knows by now that the pick was California Senator Kamala Harris. And so since this is very timely, and since this is a presidential election year, this is very, very significant in terms of what is happening in politics and in government in America. We wanted to give this some attention this week. So I have been looking for a reason to invite uh, Dr. Malcolm Cross on, uh, and, be, and, and I was saving it because I knew we were in a presidential election cycle. So I know we're going to probably invite you on again as we get closer to the election. But Dr. Malcolm Cross is a professor of political science at Tarleton University. Uh, and has been at Tarleton for a number of years, or we could say uh, uh, quite a few years. But in that time and in his professional work and scholarly activity, uh, he has focused uh, an extensive amount of his work on the executive, uh, certainly on government in America and teaching the courses that he does. But I've listened to uh, some of the presentations he's done at campus events and, and, and other forums, the things that he writes. Uh, he, he has several uh, I believe, weekly columns uh, that uh, are put out on uh, different facets and issues related to politics, and some of those deal directly with the presidency and some of the issues and challenges going on. So uh, I thought Dr. Cross would be an excellent guest today to be able to provide some analysis uh, of both the significance of a vice presidential pick, why is there so much attention given to this, but in choosing uh, Kamala Harris, uh, what does that bring to the Biden campaign or to the dynamics of this race or, or what challenges might it bring as well? So welcome, Dr. Cross. It's good to have you with us today. Good to be here. Well, first of all, let's just start and, and our listening audience varies, but I always try to give some background here, just as we do in the classroom and working with our students to give them some historical perspective. But just, you know, briefly, what is the significance of a vice presidential pick? Why is so much attention and time uh, given to this? And, and as we can see, in a way, kind of a measured approach in uh, uh, just announcing and staging and, and all of these things. But, but what is that significance of this pick? Well, the main significance for the, uh, of a vice presidential pick is that if uh, the presidential candidate chooses wisely, he's able to expand his own uh, acceptability, uh, his own uh, popularity, uh, um, because normally uh, what he tries to do is to select a vice presidential uh, nominee who will uh, may come from a different part of the country uh, or who may come from a different uh, philosophical wing of the party, or who may supply some other strength that the presidential candidate normally lacks. And in this particular case, uh, a major problem that Hillary Clinton had in 2016, and that Joe Biden could conceivably have this year, would be um, a lack of enthusiasm uh, for a Democratic ticket amongst African Americans. Um, it's interesting to note, I think, that in um, both 2008 and 2012, uh, African Americans were abnormally enthusiastic. They turned out in greater numbers uh, to vote than is normally the case. Roughly two thirds of all eligible African American voters voted in the 2008 and 2012 elections. No doubt uh, inspired to vote for the first um, uh, for the first African American president, Barack Obama. In 2016, African American 
support for Hillary Clinton dropped off. African-Americans did not shift their support to Donald Trump in any significant numbers, but African-American turnout declined from roughly 66% in 2012 to under 60% uh, in 2016. And this could have made a difference. Uh, African-American turnout was down in the three states on which uh, the 2016 election really hinged, namely, uh, uh, namely Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And some analysts believe that had African-Americans gone to the polls in these three states in 2016, in the same numbers that they did in 2012, Hillary Clinton could have carried these states and therefore could have won the presidency. So what Joe Biden seems to be wanting to do is to generate more support amongst the African-American community for his candidacy by selecting a woman of color, an African-American woman uh, to be his running mate. So in looking at that, and so we, we see the strategy that, that goes into this particular pick, there, there was a, a wide field of, of possibilities. Uh, uh, Biden had come out himself and said that the pick would be a woman. Uh, there was a lot of, of speculation that it would be uh, a, a woman that in, in some way could connect with African-Americans and with that African-American vote. Uh, here you have someone that has uh, both uh, Jamaican and Indian ancestry. So there's that, that South Asian uh, connection as well, whether that uh, how, how that affects the vote in, in certain areas that can be considered swing states and, and so on will yet to be determined. But uh, why Harris? Uh, we had, there, there were a number of other top contenders uh, in looking at this, uh, Val Demings, uh, uh, Tammy Duckworth, uh, uh, Susan Rice. I mean, there were, there were several that, that uh, even um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think, was in that, that mix as well. Um, uh, I think part of the, the question here would be, okay, yes, uh, someone who can connect with that, that voting block but what do you see that Harris brings to this ticket uh, based on her political experience? And, and, and are there some possible uh, challenges or weaknesses there that, that uh, may be highlighted as we move forward in this uh, uh, election process? Well, I, I think of all the candidates whom uh, Biden apparently was considering, Harris had one of the strongest, if not, if not the strongest, record of experience in government already. She was the attorney general of the largest state of the union uh, before being elected uh, to the US Senate from California. And I think it's significant for this reason. The first two um, major ticket candidates for vice president, Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and Sarah Palin in 2008, were both widely criticized for their relative lack of experience. Um, Geraldine Ferraro uh, had been an obscure three-term congresswoman uh, from New York City, um, and uh, Sarah Palin had served less than two years as the governor of one of the smallest states in the union, and both were vulnerable to attacks that they simply lacked uh, the experience to be uh, credible presidents, if in point of fact they were called on someday to be president. Uh, in contrast, uh, uh, Senator Harris does have a lengthy record of executive as well as legislative experience. And this, I think, uh, made her stand out from the other candidates who were being, uh, who were being considered. So uh, as far as uh, strengths and weaknesses are concerned, uh, anyone who's in government for a long period of time is going to exhibit a number of strengths, but also a number of weaknesses as well. And I think that um, from some quarters, uh, Senator Harris could be vulnerable, um, at least amongst uh, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, for being a fairly tough law and order prosecutor uh, when she was the district attorney for San, uh, for San Francisco and then the attorney general of California. Um, she has been widely criticized by liberals and libertarians uh, for her record, especially in San Francisco. Uh, she seemed to prosecute uh, with uh, excessive zeal um, parents whose 
who were not sending their children to school um, uh, frequently enough. And uh, her critics have said, well, the parents couldn't afford to do so. And uh, prosecuting them, uh, finding them, imprisoning them uh, was adding insult to injury. Um, another major criticism that was leveled at uh, Harris is that prosecutors under her supervision failed to tell defense attorneys in various drug-related cases that there was evidence that maybe uh, some of the drug-related uh, testimony being supplied by a laboratory technician was tainted, uh, that the technician had a variety of professional problems, and that uh, under California law, if a prosecutor knows that there are doubts about the validity of testimony being offered by a witness, he has to share those doubts with the defense. And this is something that uh, prosecutors under Senator, uh, under Prosecutor Harris uh, refused to do. Um, when this was finally discovered, 600 uh, drug cases based on the testimony of the slab technician uh, for whom uh, Harris's prosecutors were covering up uh, were tossed out of court. Um, on the other hand, so, you know, from a libertarian point of view, too zealous, uh, not sufficiently uh, protective of, of uh, civil liberties for criminal defendants. On the other hand, uh, she has one of the most liberal voting records of a United States senator, and this could make her vulnerable uh, to attacks from uh, people who might be undecided, uh, who, but who might be repelled by what they would consider to be excessive liberalism. Uh, one of the points that was that became apparent in the primaries is that the public generally liked ideas like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and so forth, until they learned the price tag. And once they learned the price tag for these, then support for Senator Harris uh, or uh, and other uh, left-leaning candidates began to drop like a rock, uh, making it easier for Joe Biden, uh, comparatively moderate, to win the nomination. So she could be attacked on these issues. Uh, she could be attacked from both the left and from the right. Whether or not right. these attacks will cancel each other out, who knows? Right, yes. And, and, and I think it's important to point out that uh, not that uh, here we're favoring or against a particular candidate is the is the focus of, of this and the, really the focus of the show is to try to uh, analyze how this how this plays out in the political sphere and and one of the things that we'll see and, and most people should recognize this is that that it's important to kind of look at these issues because they are going to be the the points that are going to be highlighted uh in a number of different forums uh and one, one of those that just kind of going back to what you said about executive experience so there's been a lot of discussion about about Biden, about his age. He would be the oldest uh, elected, I, I believe. That's the 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 uh, what what I've seen in in terms of how this has all been discussed and in, in looking at it historically. So uh, health concerns have been raised as well. Uh, could he complete a term and all that? S similar discussions have gone on in the past with other other candidates, but but you're also looking at a person who at any moment may have to step into that that office um and do you do you see any uh, based on executive experience and, and and seeing what she's done uh do you see that as something that will come out uh, in this in uh the debates or in these campaigns as we move toward the election that of, tr of trying in some way to say okay well she's just not uh, ready to assume an office like that I don't, it's possible that she may be uh, attacked on that basis, but I don't think those attacks would really wash. And Joe Biden himself has indicated that one of the reasons why he selected her is because she does have this executive experience uh, that she would presumably be as ready as anyone can uh, to step into the presidency should God forbid uh, something uh, uh, happen to Biden. Um, as I say, she, will, has this very strong executive background and any attacks on her executive experience, I think are going to be ineffective and without any degree of credibility. Um, 
Well, another another facet of that was to look back at at her campaign, and you talked a little bit about it and some of the issues that she focused on, and and so on. But her her campaign for the presidency presidency fell apart rather early on, and uh, uh, I, we've seen that in the past. I mean, if we look back at 2008, with Biden was running for president as well, he didn't even get off the ground really. Uh, and and yet ended up being the vice presidential selection. So it doesn't necessarily necessarily co- correlate that a, a presidential aspirations. It's a different environment uh, when you're when you're appealing to the party and you're running in the primary than when you move into the the general election. Um, I've looked at this and I, to me it seems like that some of these other strengths that that you pointed out, executive experience or connection with. Uh, uh, Af- the African-American uh, uh, voting bloc across the country. If you look at the s- support Biden has already had there through the primary process, uh, I-, I really don't see that they they correlate. I didn't know if you had any perspective on that or if you, you saw any concerns that may actually come out in this campaign process uh, that would focus on her, uh, the challenge that she had running as a presidential candidate versus now running as uh, the uh, VP nominee? Well, I, I think that if you, first of all, look at her presidential campaign, you're right. Uh, it fell apart very, very quickly. And I think much of it was due to the fact that uh, she simply wasn't ready for prime time back then. Um, her grasp on the issues, aside from being uh, too liberal from the point of view of many moderates and definitely from the point of view of many conservatives, uh, was very, very shaky. Uh, her discussions of Medicare for All indicated she didn't really know what she was talking about yet. She had not really thought through the issues. Um, one hopes for her sake that she's had a lot more time to study the issues and is better prepared for them. Um, but in reality, most people are going to vote for president and not for vice president. And there have been a, a record of relatively inept uh, vice presidential candidates in the past, uh, uh, sometimes on the Republican side, sometimes on the Democratic side, but they really haven't affected the outcome of the election. One thinks of Spiro Agnew, Dan Quayle, uh, Sarah Palin. Um, uh, they, their presence on the ticket certainly did not prevent uh, the election of, uh, uh, of their presidential running mates. Um, I think that uh, what probably outweighs everything else is the fact that she is a person of color. Um, the fact that she's a woman probably isn't relevant. Uh, it's interesting to note that um, the three previous tickets on which there was a woman presidential or vice presidential candidate all lost. Um, on the other hand, uh, the two tickets on which there was a person of color won. And uh, getting back to a point that I made a little bit earlier, the main strength that she's going to bring is not what she says in debates or how she campaigns, but the fact that she is a person of color uh, who will gin up enough enthusiasm amongst African Americans to increase the chances of Joe Biden crossing the finish line ahead of Donald Trump. So speaking to that issue and kind of looking ahead too, because she she seems to be one with her experience that would be like a Joe Biden as vice president or a George H.W. Bush or a, a Dick Cheney even. He was a little bit outside the mold of, I think, uh, of, of some vice presidents or the at least in, in more recent times, but that would be in, in, in very engaged in an administration. Um, but you talked about the, the struggle she had with uh, – a, a, policy and, and especially in her, her presidential campaign. Um, and, and I don't know that this even matters when we start looking at the debates in terms of the way the formats line up. I, I don't, we, we look at the, the, the Trump-Pence uh, 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 ticket and, and campaign. And, and if you look at the, the debates, I mean, Trump doesn't dive deep in policy. You have Biden who dives deep to the point that people get you know, glazed over and, and, and lose, you know, lose interest because he can, he, he can go in uh, into some issues very, very significantly. Um, how do you see this lining up? And that I know as, as kind of political scientists, as people who look at this, the, the debates 
they don't, in terms of substance, they don't often mean much, but in terms of impact on public opinion and undecided voters, they mean a lot. And so when you look at the two, two sides here, the two campaigns and those, those dynamics, where, where do you see uh, some of the, the, the things that might be influential on, on making those, moving those undecided votes there at the last minute? Well, I, I think that uh, debates uh, represent, you know, the triumph of style over substance. Um, mm -hmm. uh, unless a candidate is uh, says something extraordinarily stupid, like Jerry Ford liberating Eastern Europe, uh, uh, nobody's going to really care about the substance one way or the other. They'll care about the style. Um, normally, uh, anyone, if you look at the uh, debate performances in the past, the candidates who do the best are those who can not only uh, convey the impression that they know what they're talking about, but who tend to be relaxed, friendly, courteous, and so forth. Uh, this is why Mike Pence is considered to have been uh, the winner of his debate with, uh, with Hillary Clinton's running mate, uh, Tim Kaine, in 2016. Uh, Kaine, in many respects, was a very gracious man. Uh, but he, for reasons known best to himself, uh, chose to uh, behave in an extraordinarily rude manner, uh, constantly interrupting Pence, not allowing him to complete a sentence, and uh, that may have hurt. Uh, it certainly didn't help. Um, on the other hand, you know, another, uh, although the major exception to this rule would, of course, be Donald Trump's conduct in the 2016 mm -hmm. debates. Uh, he exhibited none of the traditionally acceptable behavior patterns in those debates. Um, but it worked for him because his supporters really loved it. They really ate it up. Um, I think that in 2020, uh, Donald Trump will uh, make his supporters more enthusiastic for him by repeating the same um, rude, obnoxious behavior patterns that made him so popular with the supporters in 2016. And this is going to be a major problem for Joe Biden. On the other hand, there's still this prejudice against rude, pushy women. And Senator Harris is going to have to walk a very fine line between, uh, uh, in, in terms of her conduct, uh, she will need to uh, be the relaxed, friendly, courteous, knowledgeable debater um, who's nonetheless able to score points against Mike Pence, who's able to point out whatever inconsistencies or inaccuracies uh, Mike Pence um, uh, may be guilty of. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex matter. Yeah, it's going to be, I think it's going to be an interesting how, how it really lines up and how that, how that, that plays out. And, and of course, you know, as we know, many people will be decided and may already have cast their votes by the time that those, those debates air. And uh, so, so it'll be interesting to see how that, that swings things one way or another. Uh, the, and, uh, uh, if I could, and I, I might sure. add that uh, most public opinion polls show that debates are more likely to support and reinforce mm -hmm. uh, existing views than to change views. Now, in a very, very close election, and this election could tighten up, um, the shift of a few thousand voters one way or the other right. the of debates could make a difference. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, so bring that kind of home to Texas and uh, looking at it, because Texas is now, based on current polls, is in play, uh, and and some would say, and and I and I've I always when when I've done a few outside interviews on on this on some radio stations and so on, and I've said we've got to be careful here because uh, Texas is very different from say Ohio, with Ohio having three major metropolitan areas. Texas has uh, a handful of major metropolitan areas, but it also has that middle level of of, of larger cities that often uh, can swing that vote one way or another, you know, depending on, on where they are in the state and, and how they uh, how they trend. Um, but but this is has tightened up, certainly in Texas to bring it into play. How, how do you see a Biden Harris ticket uh, uh, 
kind of playing in Texas as now, you know, we're going to, everyone's going to be looking at these polls over the next few weeks to see how this VP selection influences uh, voting in swing states. Uh, Do you see that that has any really impact here or or, or does it strengthen Biden's uh, campaign with the possibility? Because we know if Texas, if Texas goes blue uh, with the majority vote, uh, then it's a done deal. I mean, the, there's just it's it's the three big st- mega states and it's it's over. But uh, but that's so and everybody's looking at that. We know that there's a lot more complexity to that as well. But I just wonder if you had any thoughts on on how this plays out in Texas. I think in Texas as in elsewhere, um, the uh, selection of Paris is going to. Uh, um, somewhat uh, will probably strengthen uh, the Democratic ticket. Now, um, I think Republicans uh, should be very, very concerned about Texas. Uh, Some public opinion polls have shown it's a toss up. Other polls have shown that Biden has opened a small lead in Texas, maybe five or 6%. And you're absolutely right that if Texas goes Democratic, uh, that's the ball game. uh, the last president, the last Republican president to win Texas, or to win, the, the last Republican to win the presidency without winning Texas was Richard Nixon in 1920, in 1968. Before that, you got to go back to 1924 uh, to find a, a president who could win the White House, or a Republican president who could win the White House while losing Texas. Um, I think that the impact that Harris will have is again to generate more enthusiasm amongst African-American voters to inspire African-American voters to turn out um, in greater levels than they did in uh, 2016. And in a very closely balanced race, as the race between Trump and Biden seems to be in Texas, that could make a difference. Uh, Harris will not hurt uh, the Democratic ticket she could conceivably help it decisively uh, if uh, if uh, Trump and Biden are otherwise very easily balanced. One, one final question. I appreciate you again being with us today uh, to uh, discuss this uh, kind of critical stage in this election process. Uh, so within 24 hours of uh, choosing Harris, the uh, uh, Biden campaign raised uh, $26 million, which was a, a record in terms of a 24-hour uh, 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 fundraising uh, opportunity, you know, post-selection uh, like this. Of course, that could be the uh, a sign of the times in terms of, you know, it's in a presidential election year. We know these things get more expensive every cycle, uh, and, and money becomes even more critical uh, when you're talking about the uh, the billion-plus that is spent on on campaigns that that may actually drop because of public events may be more challenging to do this time but of course that means more tv and radio advertising and and so forth which is expensive um what do you what do you see there in terms of of uh you know resources and and that kind of 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 fundraising that quickly uh is that does that tell us really anything about the the direction this going is going or the really the strength of, of the resources they will have to, uh, uh, you know, play in this over against the Trump campaign? I think it's an ominous sign for the Republicans. Um, up until the rise of Bill Clinton, uh, Republicans always had more resources than Democrats. And uh, the Democrats have a great debt to Bill Clinton to, uh, uh, for his work in uh, tooling up the Democratic money-raising machine and uh, allowing the Democrats to compete on an even basis, on an equal basis, uh, with the Republicans, um, I think the fact that the Democrats were able to raise so much money uh, in a 24-hour period, uh, I think, uh, is a tribute partly uh, to the Clinton era innovations, partly to innovations brought about by Barack Obama. Uh, partly uh, to excitement over Senator Harris being on the Democratic ticket and partly over the Democrats' uh, devout determination to uh, reclaim the White House. One thing that should never be underestimated, and well, I mean, it, it, it should, that ought to be kept in mind, 
and probably not overestimated, I should have said overestimated, uh, is the fact that the Democrats, to a much greater extent in confronting Donald Trump than in confronting, say, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, have been much more determined because Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote in uh, 2016. And for that reason, the Democrats have felt a, a special grievance against Donald Trump that they did not feel against Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush. Um, and I think that this special grievance is uh, probably contributing a lot uh, to the success of Democrats in raising funds um, during this period of time. Well, I want to thank you for your insights and, and analysis today. I know that'll help our, our viewers uh, kind of look at those facets of this as we move forward with this, uh, uh, with this camp, these campaigns and move toward the election less than a hundred days. And uh, I hope also we'll have you back on because uh, I think this is going to get more interesting the closer that we get and, and hopefully some post-election analysis as well. But we've been uh, uh, pleased to be joined by Dr. Malcolm Cross, professor of political science here at Tarleton State uh, for his insights and offering his uh, knowledge and experience in uh, not only teaching about the executive and about elections and campaigns over the years, but but also offering uh, analysis uh, through writing and speaking and, and uh, uh, different avenues that he's had as a professor here at the university. So thank you again for joining us today. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for more on politics. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Looking for a fun, casual podcast? Well, listen to Cruising the Planet, conversations between a rotating crew of broke college students just trying to get through the semester. Listen in live every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Central on the Tarleton Radio YouTube channel. Or listen to the episode afterwards wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Cruising the Planet. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we want to thank again Dr. Malcolm Cross, Professor of Political Science here at Tarleton State, for joining us for the first half of the program. And if you were not able to hear that and you're just joining us, our focus was on the Kamala Harris pick as VP nominee for the Biden campaign. And you can listen to that on SoundCloud following the show that's on politics with Eric Morrow, or you can download uh, where you get your, po your podcast. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Dr. Cross provided some really engaging insights uh, into this selection of Kamala Harris and how that may uh, influence or impact both the campaign as well as the uh, upcoming presidential election. Uh, I want to turn now for the second part of the show to focus on some things that I have been researching as well as doing some interviews on this past week. I had the opportunity uh, to appear on KTVT Channel 11 out of Dallas-Fort Worth uh, to talk a little bit about the executive order uh, that President Trump issued uh, the week uh, before this last week, uh, focused on extending unemployment benefits. Also, that executive order addressed uh, uh, student loans, it addressed um, uh, uh, housing evictions, it, it addressed a few other things. But one of the things that received attention, especially with the expiration at the end of July of the additional benefit, unemployment benefits that were being provided uh, by the federal government uh, was uh, this focus now the deadlock in Congress uh, over uh, the, that extension, uh, as well as trying to to come to agreement on different types of relief uh, to combat the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And so we've seen over the past few weeks the struggle for Congress to come together. Of course, I want to remind our viewers that we have a split Congress, the House controlled by the Democrats, the Senate, the majority by the Republicans. And so anytime you have divided Congress like this, and of course you're looking at major legislation and major appropriations, uh, this becomes a, a, a challenge to get things to get things passed, get things through, to find consensus and agreement. Uh, so I want to focus on a couple of aspects of this just to, to give people insight. I mean, one of these, and when we look at this uh, from a distance, when we look at this through the, the media and through what we listen to and watch or what we read, uh, many people respond, well, that's business as usual. Uh, Congress is deadlocked. They can't get something done. Uh, and here the president is trying to, to do something uh, to counter that or to push them to do it, uh, to find some resolution to this. And, and so the, the, the challenges are that it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. Yes, our, our government and our legislative process is set up to be contentious, uh, as we've talked about on this show before, uh, to, uh, to go through a number of phases and gates and approvals in order for uh, things to be passed, especially of this magnitude. Uh, but one of the things that we've seen is the challenges of not only a divided Congress, but of the, the way that this is being handled in the Senate. And one of the things that I've been looking at, and I've, I've looked to other analysts on this as well, uh, is that you, you really have a, a challenge here with leaders in both the House and the Senate uh, trying to uh, push this off and the blame off of not getting anything done on each other. Uh, and, and it's happening on both sides. Republicans are doing it. Democrats are doing it. Uh, it, it seems that the leadership in both bodies, uh, that their focus here is not on trying to work to consensus, which often involves trade-offs. It involves not getting everything you want. Uh, it involves maybe more incremental approach where you're doing things in, in, on a smaller scale. Uh, it involves and has in Congress in the past amendments that have nothing to do with the legislation itself, uh, but those trade-offs are being made uh, in order to get people on board uh, to get enough consensus. And so we're not, we're not seeing that. We're not seeing uh, the attempts at consensus. We're seeing uh, attempts at holding a line and then blaming others on not getting any, anything done. Now, that is politics. I mean, that's part of, of politics. That's part of the, uh, the outward-facing view that politicians want their constituents to have. Hey, I'm working for you. I'm working for what you want. I'm not going to compromise. Uh, and uh, I'm, and if, it, if it doesn't work out, it's this is whose fault it is. Uh, we have to understand that in terms of politics. And part of it in this dynamic is we're coming up to an election. That election is going to have a significant impact on the makeup of government. And so that's, that, that is part of it as well. Part of it is we're in a crisis here uh, in which people in government and in policy are, uh, they're becoming very weary of the challenges with this. Uh, they're, they're, there's a lot of uh, certainly debate over what are the best steps going forward. Uh, and so you see this, this complexity just adds to uh, this challenge of getting anything done. So here you have the president who comes along and uh, is trying to, to push on this process by using the power of executive orders uh, in order to address some of the things that actually Congress should be doing. Uh, so one of the ones that he put forward in the executive order uh, was to extend uh, unemployment or add an additional benefit of over unemployment insurance of $400. Uh, it had been $600 a week, now $400 a week. 300 of that would be paid by the federal government. The other 100 would be put on the states. And as soon as this came out, it created a tremendous amount of controversy. Does he have the authority to do that? Is this uh, you know, constitutional in terms of executive power. Uh, it's he's taking away something that Congress should should do and should address. And so it's interesting to look at the presidential memoranda uh, regarding this and the executive order to to look into how this is being done because it's not just oh the president's authorizing an, uh, a bump in additional unemployment benefits. He he doesn't have the authority to do that. He does have the authority to transfer appropriations. Uh, under certain rules and regulations. And I'm not going to take a deep dive into all of that. Uh, that's what uh, 
the administration attorneys and congressional attorneys, that's, that's what they do is they, they monitor all this, they look at it, they know the ins and outs. Uh, but what he's basically had proposed to do, uh, because the coronavirus pandemic was declared a national disaster, he proposed to take approximately $46 billion out of disaster relief funds, which had 80 plus billion, leave some in there for hurricane season and for other things that may happen in which disaster resources would be needed, but to shift that over uh, as then and use that as a benefit for however many weeks that it would last uh, for people who were on unemployment. So immediately questions came up about the constitutionality of that. Can he, can he actually do this? Can he appropriate something? The, the questions came up about the process because can, he, uh, can these funds be pushed into the unemployment insurance funding? Uh, and, and some most said, looked at that and said, well, no, because that's not really what they were appropriated for. So you have to create a new mechanism by which to distribute those funds that could take weeks uh, if not months, uh, for states to do that. Um, and so then the, uh, the other focus was on the states, states who are already uh, dependent on federal dollars uh, through the CARES Act to help cover uh, 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 challenges, expenses, uh, uh, needs that have come up because of the pandemic. But now they're being asked to add $100 per person per week uh, to this uh, to help extend these benefits. And so uh, there was immediately some pushback uh, from states on that of saying, well, we, many states, we just can't afford that. We, or some saying, well, we just don't know what we can do. We have to look at this and see what mechanisms we have. Can we ask the federal government for additional funding to cover the state portion or not? So this immediately created a, a, a number of concerns and challenges where both sides, Democrat and Republicans, White House and Congress were going back and forth on what was appropriate or what was not appropriate uh, for the president to, president to do and what could actually be done. In some of the interviews that I gave in looking at this, uh, my focus was on uh, or part, partly on that this was something the president was doing and whether he could get it done or not didn't really matter. He wanted to make the effort because as we approach the election, he needs wins. He needs some things that will move uh, public opinion polls and support in his direction. Uh, he needs to be shown to uh, doing what he can, even if Congress cannot, uh, to serve the people. And it, it really became a win-win for him. Even if he could not follow through with this, if he could force Congress back together to come to solution, if he could sway public opinion on this issue to the point where uh, that pressure was being put on Congress uh, to do this. And, and we may see this increase even more as this goes along because uh, the Senate is out and the and the Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader has said that they would not come back into session until after Labor Day, except to vote on some type of, uh, of, of coronavirus relief uh, funding. So we, we may still see that happen. Uh, it, it, Part of it now is these is people have gone back to their constituents, they've gone back to their states for the senators, and they're going to be hearing from people and they're going to be examining needs. They're going to be talking to their state leadership uh, and, and the pressure may ramp up the further we go uh, without these additional benefits uh, being in place. Uh, some will argue during that time, do we actually need them? If, if, if more jobs are being created, less uh, unemployment uh, they're not, it's not increasing as rapidly uh, and other economic indicators are there to show that, hey, this is getting back on track. Uh, I still think that there's going to have to be some kind of, of, of relief in different areas because state governments are already getting very, hit very hard in terms of their revenue. We see that right here in Texas uh, where we're looking at uh, significant cuts in this fiscal cycle going into the next. And then of course our budget process starts up again in January uh, for the next biennium and what will the revenue picture be then? Uh, so I, uh, the, the other one is elections. There's been a debate. This is a contentious point between Democrats and Republicans in Congress over more election security, more funding uh, to make sure that elections are um, uh, conducted in the way that they need to be during this pandemic. I mean, there, there's just all kinds of, of facets of this that are challenging. 
But back to President Trump. So my case was that, again, he is uh, trying to force Congress's hand. He's trying to say, well, look, if you're not going to do something, I'll do something. This this really goes back, if you think back to the uh, President Obama, who had a, a, a Democratic Congress to start his administration. And then two years in, it was a divided Congress for the rest. Uh, how difficult it became. And he said, I'm going to use the pen and the phone, the powers of the presidency uh, to be able to accomplish some things. And, and here we see that, I think, for Trump as well. He's trying to, through whatever mechanism he can, to one, offer that to people to say, look, I'm working on your behalf. Two, to force Congress to do something, again, would be a win for him because he could he could tout that and say, well, look, this wouldn't have moved as quickly and come to a resolution if I had not stepped forward and attempted to use executive authority uh, to address this issue. Uh, so I think in looking at this and trying to understand it, and especially in a challenging time when we know there are many people out there that are dependent on these resources uh, to, to to get through this time period where they may be between jobs and they may be, uh, uh, have, they've lost their job because of this pandemic. They're trying to find something else and they need that assistance uh, that, 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 this is becomes very political, very challenging, uh, very difficult uh, because it doesn't get resolved easily, and we may not see a resolution on it uh, for uh, a num for for weeks to come uh, until either Congress decides to do something or the this is figured out how this executive order uh, can be uh, put in place. So I wanted to give some attention to that today because I think it's a um, uh, a critical issue that gives us insight in terms of the challenges and the complexity of these issues at the federal level right now and trying to deal with this. I'll wrap this up by going back to an argument I made several weeks ago uh, regarding uh, the Trump presidency being a victim of federalism. And here again, I think this issue highlights that. Uh, it highlights it in that this executive order was pushed out really without consultation with the states. And I think that created some of the controversy around it and created some of the, the challenges in actually being able to do something. And so my, my argument a few weeks ago uh, was that in uh, dealing with the pandemic, uh, that, that the Trump administration and his advisors uh, are, are not well versed in understanding federalism and understanding the, the way that our country is set up and the, the, the authority, the spheres of authority, some of it shared between states and the federal government. Uh, because I think if, if that approach early on had been a much more collaborative effort with both specific states and states as a whole, uh, I gave the image of, of President Trump standing up with governors around him where there's consensus and support and there's collaboration, even if there's not always agreement, that that would have served the Trump presidency much, much better. And here we have another example of this uh, in that you have a, an action on the part of the president that puts something off on the states in a very critical and challenging time, but without any previous consultation, any discussion, anything that would, would aid his case in being able to do this. It, it's almost as if acting in terms of, of the presidency uh, without recognizing that, that states do have a, have a role here and that there is executives, their governors, uh, and their leadership have a role as well. And that can go a long way in terms of both the, the, the visibility, the, the public relations, uh, the, the collaboration, and even public opinion related to the actions of the president uh, when you've got that support at the state level. Uh, and so I'll, we should be looking for, for more things like it. It'd be interesting to see if the if this changes significantly, and, and I'll highlight it if it does, uh, if uh, Joe Biden is elected president in November, will, will this kind of revert back uh, to, or, or again, try to find some balance? Not to say that it's always been balanced or that even is at this point, because as I uh, spoke about in that uh, uh, show a few weeks ago, the, the line of federalism and how it's developed in that relationship has really changed and, and more and more authority has been given to the federal government over time, or the or at least the role that the federal government has through resources into various programs, 
laws and so on, and through court cases, through Supreme Court decisions and, and so forth. So we don't have time here to go back over all that. So I invite you to go on to SoundCloud uh, or where you get your podcast and, and download that episode. But I just wanted to highlight that I thought this was another example of that challenging relationship. Uh, and some of that may come from a lack of, of, of executive experience in politics or in governance by President Trump, either at the state or the federal level, uh, which I think most seasoned politicians would have a, a strong awareness of this, especially as it relates to their own state. They're, they're as a senator or a member of Congress, they are representative or having been a governor. These are where presidents in the past have, have come from and, and have had that experience to kind of know the dynamics of that relationship. And I just, I just have, have struggled to see that in the Trump presidency. And I think that that lack of awareness of that and the lack of, of the understanding the dynamics of that uh, have, have really challenged uh, the Trump presidency in, in, in this pandemic and on, uh, some of these other issues as well. So I want to leave that with you today. I want to thank you for joining us uh, here on KTRL 90.5 FM, where we broadcast uh, most weeks. We've missed a few weeks here recently, but we hope to be back on track on a weekly basis at 12 noon uh, every Sunday, and of course available online at tarletonradio.com. And then as I've mentioned several times today, after the show. So if you're not able to listen at noon on Sundays, uh, you can download the show on SoundCloud uh, or where you get your podcast. And you can look on, on SoundCloud for sure. You can see all of the previous shows on a wide range of topics. And we will look forward to, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm planning in the next few weeks as we approach the legislative session here in Texas in January uh, to have some policy experts and analysts on the show uh, to talk about various issues that we, we may see coming up uh, in that legislative session in addition uh, to the budget. So again, I thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to being with you each week at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, and let me know what you think on the show or different segments or issues that we talk about. And I look forward to bringing you more engaging uh, issues, looking at the politics, looking at how we govern ourselves, looking at providing you information uh, with in these critical areas, both on the local, state, federal and international level, uh, so that you can be informed and be engaged with these issues. Thank you and have a good week. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.